Hello, 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 and welcome to the show. This is episode 21 of Mike on the Mic, with me, Mike. Oh, but this week, we are joined by a very special guest. Hello, everyone. Oh, no, shh, shh, not yet. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you when to come in. Oh, sorry, my fault, sorry. As I was saying, this week, we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, it's my girlfriend, Suze. Suze, th- 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 this is when you say hello. Ah, yes, of course. Hello, everyone. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Right then, here goes. W- w- wish me luck. Good luck. <clears throat> she sells seashells on the seashore. The cells she shell Shells she sells... Ah, so close. Come on, come on. You'll get it. Okay, here we go. She shells sea set. Oh, I'm so annoyed. I've been practicing this all week. I could do it yesterday. I just really want to get it right. Okay, I'm going to try again. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. She sells sea cells. Shells. Fiddlesticks. Oh, I'm just so rubbish at this. No, you're not. You're just overthinking. Deep breath. Take your time. You've got this. She sells seashells on the seashore. The seashells that she sells are seashells, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I did it! <laughs> Yay, well done! <laughs> oh, right, yes, but Suze, oh, and our lovely listeners, of course, why do you think I decided to start this week's episode with that particular little rhymey, tongue-twistery thing? I don't know. Um, To show off your super tongue-twister skills? Or are you going to tell me that the tongue-twister was written by someone famous, like like Shakespeare or someone, and today's episode's about them? Oh, no, no, that that is a really good guess, but no, no, it's it's not quite right. Is this week's episode about shells? Oh, you you are so close, you don't even know it. But, But no, it's not quite close enough. Oh, I don't know. You're, you're going to have to tell me. Right, okay, okay, okay. What if I told you that that famous little rhyme, little tongue twistery thing, is based on a true story? What if I told you it's all about a real woman? I never knew that until this week. It blew my mind. I must have read that tongue twister a thousand times. Well, at least tried to at least. And I never knew that there was a real story behind it. But, well, I don't mean to be rude, but it doesn't sound like a particularly interesting story. Is a story about a woman selling shells really worth a whole episode? Oh, well, that is where you're wrong. Because because this woman was born into abject poverty. So much so that her family, their, their only way to make a living, was to sell the, the shells and the fossils they collected on their local beach. And she had no sort of formal education or training. But then recently, decades after her death, she was named one of the most influential women in the history of science. She lived the most topsy-turvy roller coaster of her life, with the highest highs and the lowest lows. Her story has more twists and turns than a mystery novel. That's amazing. What's her name? Ah, well... Her name is Mary Anning.
As a child, I thought I was cursed. The world around me seemed so monstrous, so unforgiving. Everywhere I went, pain, suffering and calamity followed like clockwork. As sure as night follows day, follows night, follows day. In my world, pain followed loss, followed pain, followed grief, followed suffering. I'm the youngest of ten siblings, but I shouldn't have been. Many pregnancies and births followed my birth for my mother, but not one of those children survived past their second birthday. The innocent victims of the curse. I remember the first time a younger sibling arrived. A boy called John. He had the most delicate little face. It's his nose I remember so distinctly. I have never seen something so small and so perfect. I loved him with all my heart the moment I saw him. I could see a lifetime of joy and happiness mapping out before him. He was dead within a month. I watched him waste away and rot and it hurt so much. It was only after watching my sixth younger sibling die that I taught myself not to love them, not to let myself feel anything. After that, every death I watched meant nothing, an empty fact of existence. Death is at the heart of everything. To live is to die. It was then that I realised that I'm not cursed. It's much simpler than that. I am the curse. I am sent to this world by God to remind humanity what awaits them in hell. I don't know why people were surprised about what I went on to do with my life. I've always been an expert in things that are dead, in those that have decayed and withered away. I've been immersed in it since the day I took my first breath. Blow neck, Mike. I thought this was supposed to be a light entertainment show. It, it, it does get better, I promise. Well, for, for a little bit. Mary was born on the 21st of May, 1799, in Lyme Regis, in Dorset. And that's where she lived her entire life. Her parents were called Richard and Molly. Interestingly, Mary wasn't supposed to be called Mary. Richard and Molly already had a daughter called Mary, but as you can probably guess, that Mary died. And so our Mary got the name instead. Which is really weird when you think about it. Imagine being given the name of your dead older sibling. It's as if you were you're supposed to replace them. Your name. The first and most basic thing that anyone knows about you is a reminder of the tragedy in your family. Like a dark storm cloud hanging over your entire life. The sound of your own name would, would be like the sound of funeral bells every time anyone said it. It gives me chills just thinking about it. Now, you might think that the Anning family were really unlucky, but unfortunately, this sort of thing wasn't uncommon. In the late 17th and early 18th century, infant mortality rates were incredibly high, particularly amongst those who were, were poorer or, or more disadvantaged, which is exactly what the Annings were. All of them. 
Richard and Molly and their small army of children lived in a small house not far from the town bridge. Unfortunately, the house wasn't in the best position. It flooded all the bloody time. In fact, they would regularly have to escape the floods by going upstairs and climbing out of the topmost window. It would cause incredible damage to the house that would take months to repair, so so it seems like they spent more time living on the streets than they did in their actual house. Richard, Mary's father, was a cabinet maker by trade, but business wasn't always that great, and so to top up his income, he would scour the beaches and the cliffs in the surrounding area for fossils and shells that he could sell to tourists. Quite a clever little business. And in fact, he made so much money doing this that as soon as the kids were old enough, he sent them out as well. And you'll never guess what. One of the kids took to it like a duck to water and had a huge talent for it. In fact, she was so good at it, she caused quite the storm. I stand for a moment on the edge of the cliff. A deep mist obscures the world below. And in those seconds, my mind wanders and my imagination tells my body that this is not the edge of a ragged cliff above a delicate beach, but it is in fact the edge of the world. A stiff and uncompromising breeze brings me back to reality. I breathe deeply and the icy air rushes into my lungs. This chill wind is all that remains from last night's storm. The rain gone, the thunder gone, the lightning is but a distant memory. All gone. Presumably, they have flown a thousand leagues across the Atlantic and even now charged towards the Americas and the New World. A lone gull calls overhead. I pray the storms have not left us for long. Whether that brings dread to the hearts of many makes my heart fly as vigorously as that lone gull now soars away from me and makes for the horizon. Storms in these parts mean landslides, and landslides bring all kinds of fresh treasures to the surface. And my calling in life is to hunt those treasures. With the keen eyes of a seasoned predator, I spot my first prey. This is where my real skill lies. My father and brothers collect faster than me. Their long legs and strong arms means they can cover more ground and carry more weight, but my keen eye and my knowledge of the subject means that I can spot the most precious of artefacts from a great distance. Whilst they waste their time with the most common of things, no better than pebbles, I know where the beach's diamonds lie. On this occasion, my first prize of the day is a large jagged stone in which is imprinted an intricate spiral of pale white. It is beautiful. After many years of walking these cliffs and finding similar fossils, you may think the thrill of discovery might wear off, but it hasn't. I stare transfixed at this ancient being preserved in stone, and I wonder what world it inhabited. In my younger days, 
I would have called this a snake stone. This is what my father will call it when he sells it to a pompous aristocrat with more money than sense to sit on a mantelpiece in their grand home. But I know better now. I know from my years of curiosity that this is an ammonite. Once, this spiralled creature would have been a marine mollusk, a small invertebrate and an early evolutionary ancestor of what we now call the octopus. It breaks my heart when I realise its future owner will never know the truth. This small but noble creature will be all but forgotten as it becomes nothing but a curio. As my fingers trace along intricate and intertwining spirals, something catches my eye. Something, something much more significant. This is no harmless curio, no small mollusk. This, this might change the world. Oh, what could it be? <laughs> Drum roll, please. It's a dinosaur. No way. A real dinosaur in Lyme Regis in the 19th century? Yeah. I mean, well, a, a fossilised one that's been dead for millions of years, but, but still, that's pretty cool. But first, before we go on, I, I just want to re reflect on what we've just heard. The real magic behind Mary's story is her, her curiosity. That's how she changed her fortunes. By asking questions reading books, studying detail, and having this incredible thirst for knowledge. I think that's amazing. She was like a terrifying monster, eating everyone in sight. But instead of being a terrifying monster, she was just a nice, normal person. And instead of eating people, she was devouring knowledge and information. I think curiosity like that is, is one of the most important things. As you can probably tell by listening to this podcast, I'm, uh, I'm quite curious myself. I spend my life discovering new stories, reading about oh, new things and uh, exciting people. Our whole world is full of mysteries, secrets, stories and life. A whole globe pulsating with life every day. New things happen just waiting to be learnt. All around the world, new stories are being created just waiting to be told. It, it sometimes makes me sad that I'll never be able to hear them all. I've never understood those people that, that, that don't care. Actually, it's, it's one of the first things that you know, first attracted me to you, Suze. I don't know about that. I don't know or read half as much as you do. Uh, no, but, but you're curious in a different way. If I was left alone, I, I sometimes worry I'd spend all my time locked away reading about the world rather than actually seeing it. I, I've always thought that you've got this, this amazing energy to get out and actually see things. You have been the architect behind all of my favourite adventures. Whether it's when we went to Greece on holiday and we got to see all of that history that I'd spent my life reading about. Or just, you know, a, a, a walk in the park on a sunny Sunday afternoon. My life would be so empty without you to fill it up. Just to fill you listeners in, I'm currently blushing like a big red lobster. But what about this dinosaur? You've kept us all on tenterhooks. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So, as we've heard, 
Mary not only had a great eye for fossils, but she also had the knowledge and the experience to recognise which ones were really significant. And in the 1810s, Mary made a series of finds that shook the worlds of science and geology to, to their very core. Now, you may know that Lyme Regis is on what's known as the Jurassic Coast, but did you know that it's called that because of Mary's discoveries? Coastal erosion, or the, um, the, the landslides that we've already heard about, means that there are 185 million years of history buried under the cliffs of Dorset. All that means that there are all these secrets to the Jurassic, Triassic and Cretaceous eras buried under years of coastal erosion. And all of that erosion means that over the millennia, new rock formations have appeared and that there are all these geological treats buried for people like Mary to find. Mary's first major discovery was in 1811, when she discovered the first ever complete skeleton of an ichthyosaur. The skeleton stretched over 17 feet long, which is the same as the height of around three Beyoncés. Mary sold the skeleton to a local wealthy landowner who passed the ichthyosaur on to William Burroughs, who put it on display in London, where it caused this huge stir in the scientific community. Because this was an animal that previously no one had known had existed. The controversy spread to the rest of the world when Sir Everard Holm published a book about Mary's findings. It caused uproar all over the world because loads of people thought it must be a fake. It was huge. Like, one of the most important discoveries in the history of geology. And it really contributed to the uh, the theory of evolution and to people working out how old the world is. 45 years later, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, where Old Charlie Boy spells out natural selection, survival of the fittest, probably the most significant book in the history of science. And guess what gets a mention? Mary's ichthyosaur. Now, here's the sad part. Mary never gets credit for making that discovery, for, for finding the, the, the thing. In Sir Everard Holmes' book, he includes Mary's original sketches of the, uh, the, the uh, ichthyosaur. But he says they were done by that guy Burroughs, who, who ran the museum where it was, where it was on display. And so, despite making one of the most significant discoveries in the history of the world, no one really knows that it was her that did it. And get this, that skull of that ichthyosaur is still on display in the Museum of Natural History in London, but no mention of Mary. That's awful. Sorry to interrupt. That just really wound me up. Yeah, it, it, don't, don't apologise. It, it's, it's awful, isn't it? Thankfully, though, in recent years, things have started to change and she's starting to get some of the credit she deserves. But that's not the only thing that would have troubled Mary at the time. Because in the 1810s, most of the country still believed in the book of Genesis, word for word, and, and that the world was created in seven days by God. And so... An ichthyosaur, the existence of, of a dinosaur like that that is millions of years old, seems to 
disprove that and contradict the Christian creation myth. And so therefore seeming to disprove the religious beliefs of the entire country at the time, including Mary herself. And so Mary had in fact discovered a key piece of evidence that undermined her entire view of the world. It's days like this that remind me how small this town really is. I walk into chapel, and though the congregation is as busy and bustling as it is every Sunday, no one pays me even a morsel of attention. I could be invisible. I could be as long gone as those curios I hunt. I am as nothing. Here I am, Mary, and nothing. The young woman who sits silently in the same pew every week and has done since the day she was born. But 154 miles away as the crow flies, a storm is raging. A storm of my creation. In the grand buildings of London town, the pompous worlds of science and theology curse the unknown girl from Dorset, for they do not know my name. In their many years of comfort and privilege, they have never had to question anything, to confront any troubles, to fight any fires, and now everything they know is burning. Their world is on fire, all because of me. My eyes dart around the church from face to face. My fellow worshippers have no idea the world has changed forever, but I know that they will be okay. Round here, we are used to chaos. We know the feeling of the world disappearing from beneath our feet. We have faced storms and we have won. We will do so again, whatever form those storms take. The problem with those great academics in their great halls is that they can believe without any challenge from doubt or injustice. They can believe that God is exactly who it says in the scriptures. They have never sat into the early hours praying for a storm to pass, only for rain to fall even heavier, and for your home to flood, or your loved ones to drown. They have never had God's world chew them up and spit them out. One of these great minds of academia had the cheek to ask me if this incident had caused me to wrestle with my faith, as so many of the intellectuals of London were now doing. I wanted to laugh in his face. I wanted to scream but I refrained. I looked him in the eye and I told him that if inaccuracies in the word of God had forced me to question my faith, then the flames of hell would have taken my soul before I reached womanhood. Typically, he didn't seem to understand. The truth is, discovering the ichthyosaur has done nothing but fuel my faith. In the eyes of that mighty, long, dead beast, I saw the grace of God. For once in my life, I have no interest in the facts. All logic evaporates in the face of such a magnificent beast. In its own way, this ancient monster is beautiful. In my mind's eye, I picture these fossilised bones being renewed with flesh and see this beast in its prime. Some would be afraid. I'm fascinated. I want to examine and memorise every inch and every angle, even now as, as a scattered array of bones, there's an elegance to the beast. 
Every bone intricately interlocks, and once blood would pump into every corner of the frame powered by a huge beating heart. Keen predator eyes would pierce the sky like dangerous glinting diamonds. When you see such complex magnificence, how can you not see all the things that were built with a purpose? Every inch of all animals are built for a purpose, and this predator was built to kill. When you see such complex magnificence, how can you not see that all things were built with a purpose? This miracle could not have happened by mere chance, by accident. This, like all living things, must have been perfectly planned, designed and created with such care. Animals are the world's most effective machines and machines must have an engineer. Beings are the world's greatest work of art and so they must come from the hand of an artist. The more I see of nature's beauty, the more I want to worship nature's curator and the more I want to praise the Lord God in heaven. Oh, I've got to get that. Give me one minute. But, but no, we're in the middle of recording. I can't just ignore the door, Mike. It's probably my prescription. You just riff for a little bit. Uh, oh, okay, all right then, but be quick. Hurry up! Um, ooh, okay. Hello there, listeners. This, this wasn't part of the plan. Let's just, um, shall we, um... I, I'll just reflect a little bit on what we've just heard. So, Mary has discovered this piece of evidence that you know, disproves creationism and the, the history of the world according to the Bible. But despite that, she is still a committed Christian. Because she says that, how can you look at the world and, and not think that it was created by someone? It was all designed for a purpose. You know, by someone. By God. The big fella. You know, the, the big beardy fella in the sky. And, uh, you know, the... The G-Man. Uh, Sue's still not back? Nope. Uh, Sue's? Sue's? Nope. Hmm. Sue. So, uh, okay, let, 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 let's just see if we can skip forward a bit. Let's see, um, let's see if I can do a bit that doesn't have much Mary in it. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, this bit, this bit. Uh, uh, Okay, okay, so, so, um, so, so Mary isn't the only person that views the world and, and creation like this. There's a whole section of uh, theology and philosophy called ontology. Uh, and there's this, there's this analogy called Paley's Watch. And it's called that because it's by a guy called Paley and it's uh, about a watch. Imagine that you are in the English countryside one sunny morn and walking upon a stony heath amongst the, uh, the stones and the rocks and the pebbles you see a watch the sort of item you could purchase on Savile Row and that no true English gentleman would be seen without now, if you had never seen such an item before never seen a watch you could pick this up and you would know that it was different to the other stones surrounding it you could examine it and see all the working parts, the cogs and the, the hands and the, the mechanisms that all serve a single purpose. They are all working together to tell the time. But if you'd never seen this before, you would recognize 
the sort of thing that no true English gentleman would be seen without. Now, if you examined this watch closer, you would know that it was different to the pebbles that surrounded it. You would see the working parts, the mechanisms that all work together to serve a single purpose. You cannot look at this perfectly designed watch and not know that it was designed for a reason. And it was designed by someone, somewhere. And thus, we can also say the same about the world. The world is perfectly designed for a purpose. The sun rises and sets. The moon itself controls the tides of the oceans. Crops grow, animals breed, and all for the purpose of preserving life. You cannot look at the world in the same way you cannot look at that watch and not know that it is designed, created, engineered. So that's pretty much exactly the same as what Mary's saying, isn't it? That the, the world is, is, is designed for a reason. And I... Look, I feel, I feel a, a little bit weird about disagreeing with these geniuses like Mary and, uh, and Paley. I mean, who am I? I'm... I'm just an idiot with a microphone and six GCSEs. But, and I mean, we've all, we've all done that thing where we've, we've looked at the world and been amazed by it. When I was a kid, we went on family holidays up to Scotland. We'd take the caravan and, and stay right near Loch Ness. <laughs> Me and my brother, we'd spend hours trying to find the Loch Ness monster. We'd, we'd throw pebbles into the lake and try and wake her up. Or we'd chase each other around the campsite pretending to be the monster. <laughs> or, or in the middle of the night. We'd make the noises to try and scare each other, like... You get the point. I, I always find it strange that people had to invent the Loch Ness Monster. Because isn't that place magical enough already without inventing a monster? The, the towering, scary mountains all around, the the deep lock that goes further than any human being can go. The, the greenery, the trees, the plants that stretch as far as I can see. Is that not enough? This world, this place where we all stand right now, this earth beneath our feet has been here for millions of years. And everything that surrounds us has, has changed, evolved eroded, grown, and all for, well, for no reason at all. Because of the, the magnificence, the, the, the intelligence, the, the randomness of nature. Why is that not enough for us? Why did me and my brother want to invent a monster to chase around, rather than just marvel at the monstrous beauty of nature. And why did Mary and Paley want to look for a creator rather than wonder at the creation itself? Why did 
Why did this place have to be designed rather than just happen? Isn't that more amazing? That over millions of years, these tiny little moments and, and tiny little coincidences have led to this. To us and to everything that surrounds us. Even the most beautiful sights like Loch Ness. And, well, the cynical little agnostic or maybe atheist person inside me has another problem with Paley's story about the watch or, or, or Mary's ideas about, about creation. Because, well, the world isn't perfectly designed. It, it's flawed. Years of, of, of evolution and, and humans living here have left the world with, well, some quite horrible things. Because if the world was perfectly designed, then why would hurricanes kill thousands of people? Or why did this great creator create HIV? Or, or, or why would humans be allowed to destroy the world and each other with cruelty and ignorance? And... Well, if the world was created by some great being, then why, why would good people get ill? Why would the, some of the best people that we know get, get really ill and, 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 and maybe die? If death had to be a part of life, then why did it have to hurt so much for those of us left behind? I'm back! Matt, are you alright? Oh, yeah, yeah, fine. Sorry. <laughs> Isaac! Hello, buddy! <laughs> My two favourite boys. For those of you listening who don't know Isaac, he's our dog, and he is the most adorable creature on this planet. But I should probably get rid of him or he'll spoil the recording, won't he? Uh, no, actually, this is perfect, because Mary had a pet dog who she loved very much, who would accompany her while she scoured the cliffs to find her precious treasure. So, even Isaac has a part to play in this episode. Oh, and besides, he's a good boy. Of course, trouble, will you, Isaac? Will you, Isaac? Where were we? Uh, well, whilst you were away, we were talking about religion. All right. Wow. We cover all the big subjects here on Mike on the Mic. So now, Mary is on top of the world. Her, her reputation is through the roof and she's finally starting to get some, if not all, of the credit she deserves. Scientists and academics come from all over Europe to walk the now famous cliffs with Mary. They, they pick her brains about her unique knowledge of, of geology and paleontology. No one could rival her. And anyone who was anybody in certain circles wanted to meet her and pick her brains. Our Mary, the cabinet maker's daughter, born into poverty, now the most respected scientist in Britain. She's changing the world. Go on, Mary. Go on, lass. Oh, even Isaac's excited. But... This upturn in her fortunes didn't result in upturn in her finances. Because of her gender and her class and all the nonsense prejudices like that, 
she wasn't actually able to join those great academic circles, just meet them. No university would employ her or, or let her study. She didn't have much published, just a, a couple of her letters, and so she had no way to make money off her great brain but to keep trawling those cliffs. She continued to find fossils that were hugely significant, but it's tough, dangerous work. As she got older, it, it got harder to spend those long, dangerous hours out on those rocky, jagged cliffs. Then, as the years went by, that work began to take its toll. Once upon a time, I met with scholars, with knights of the realm and professors of great regard, but that is long gone. Now I rot. I reside in indignity. People whose lives are empty and insignificant compared to my weighty achievements look at me with scorn. They mock me. The people of this town despise me. I put this town on the map, but they don't care. They don't know of my work, or, or if they, they do, then they don't understand. They see a broken, impoverished woman clogging up their precious streets. They don't know of the cancer that engulfs my body. They don't see the medication the doctors have prescribed. They don't see the intoxicating effects. They think me a wastrel, a nuisance, a drunken fool. They couldn't be further from the truth, but let them judge. I hold in my heart the knowledge of what I have done with my life and it protects me from their scorn, like, like a golden shield that cannot be broken. I have made my mark on this world. The world will forget me, but the impact I have made will outlive us all. My goodness, Mike, <laughs> this is heavy. <laughs> right, okay. I grow wary of their judgment. I find the energy and the strength to, to stumble to the beach. It takes longer than I can believe. As I limp along the streets, pausing every few yards to gasp for air, I look around and see the towering cliff tops that dominate the skyline. And it's hard to imagine that until recently, I would traverse those craggy outcrops with ease. I would dance those cliffs with such grace and elegance that it would almost be like flying, like, like soaring like an eagle, floating like a sparrow. That feels like a distant memory. That woman is but a shadow of a memory, a ghost in the history of this town. I reach my destination. I sink to the ground on the picturesque beach. I wish I could sink into the warm, soft sand. I lie back and imagine the stars. This is a clear night. The stars shine brightly. The deep black of the night sky penetrated by the burning globes of light. I am at peace. And suddenly, I know. I know that this is the end. My race is run. It's time to leave this earth and face the gates of heaven. I am at peace. I look over to the cliffs. They look more dramatic than ever. 
part of my heart sinks knowing that more secrets lie buried. Secrets that I will never know. They lie untouched for others to discover. But that regret passes. I made my mark. This world of such magnificence and beauty has been changed forever by me. By Mary Anning, the cabinet maker's daughter. Born of nothing. Dying here alone. Returning to nothing. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. But with such memories, such history. I lie back into the sand. I stretch out my arms and my hands reach against something. I pick it up. It's a shell. Of course it is. I hold it to my chest and my eyes close. As my mind starts to fade and the darkness arches, I smile. Here I lie. Mary Anning. On the seashore with a seashell. I know I should be proud, I am sure. Mary Anning died in the summer of 1855. Her battle with breast cancer left her a shadow of her former self. She died anonymously. No one knew her name outside of the world of geology. But there is yet another twist in this tale. She thought she would be forgotten. However, the great and the good of the world of science gave her glowing eulogies, including one from the Royal Society, an honour they had never before given to a woman. 150 years after her death, they even named her one of the 10 most influential women in the history of science. And 10 years after her death, a fictionalised version of her life was written. It ended with the line, The carpenter's daughter wanted her name for her own. She made one, and deserved one 10 times over. That was written by an up-and-coming, unknown author called Charles Dickens. Through her courage, her curiosity, her bombast, her toughness, her skill and her talent, she made her mark. And although she thought she would be forgotten, every day, around the world, people tell her tale. She sells seashells on the seashore. The seashells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. Mike on the Mic, She Sells Seashells. Written by Ben Wilson, performed by Ben Wilson and Tash Jarvis. Music from Scott Buckley and Luke Pearson, a Brickwall Ensemble production. Thank you for listening.